Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. Good morning, everybody. If you have your Bible open, turn to Acts chapter 2. We are going to take a bit of a journey this morning through the Bible, but we'll remind you that we are in Acts. I want to talk to you this morning about worship and how God has wired us to worship Him. And I think in order to do that, we need to get a big picture of Scripture. But as we're working our way through Acts, I just wanted to remind you, as I did in the first service, why the book of Acts, and we find the reason, actually in Luke's gospel, chapter one, because these two really go together, since with the, being the same author, he, uh, he wrote to Theophilus in Luke chapter one, he said, it seemed good to me, since I've carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. And so when we, we think about Book of Acts, why the Book of Acts, we know that Luke wrote with certainty, so we would know with certainty. He had done the investigation, he had followed the storyline, and he wrote very carefully to make sure today, as we open up the Word of God, we too, like Theophilus, would know with certainty all the things that we've been instructed. There was a man trying to teach his horse to obey two commands to stop and to start. He wanted his horse to go and stop on his command. Now, he was a very religious man, and so he thought it would be a good idea to teach him, according to some religious words, how to stop and go. So he trained the horse to go on the command of praise the Lord. He trained his horse to stop on the command of hallelujah. So one day he was out riding his horse. Something spooked the horse. He he didn't know exactly what, but the horse took off and he quickly lost control, running through the pasture. And of course, he knew at the edge of that pasture was a cliff. And he knew he needed to get that horse to stop, but in the panic, he forgot his words. He couldn't remember. So he started throwing out everything he knew. He tried, Amen, nothing. Jesus saves, nothing. Holy. Holy, holy, three times. It works in scripture. Why not on the horse? Nothing was working. And as the the precipice of that, that cliff drew closer, he suddenly remembered, hallelujah, and the horse came to a screeching halt. Whew, that old rancher sat back in his saddle for a moment and grabbed his handkerchief and he wiped the sweat off his brow and he said, whew, praise the Lord. We come to Acts chapter 2, verse 47, talking about worship and praising the Lord. We don't want to take this hour and 10 minutes lightly or casual, meaningless, because there are times that we might forget our words. 
But more importantly, we forget the why of why we're gathered. And when we forget the why, we start doing the what in a way that is not pleasing or honoring to the Lord. So we want to look at Acts chapter 2, verse 47, and find the early church in verse 46. If you would stand with me one more time before we continue as I read, starting in verse 46 and read through verse 47. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Fathers, we gather and have gathered this morning. We are blessed with another day to come together as Coastal Oaks Church. We have worshiped you with our voices. We have sung your praises for the work that you are doing with great expectation of what is to come. Now, fathers, we've opened up your word this morning. I pray you would speak to us clearly that our distractions that would hinder us from your word would be removed. Father, that you would speak clearly to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We are hardwired for worship. We will worship something or someone. This is why you can go to any tribe in the outback of Australia or the jungles of the Amazon or the concrete jungles of New York City, the coldest regions of the north, the great cathedrals of Europe, a local coffee shop or a football stadium on Friday night. And you will find people Every people group has something or someone to worship. If you will turn over to Romans chapter 1, I'm not going to read the whole chapter for you. I hope that you'll take some time to read through it and think about it, pray about it this week. But specifically starting in verse 18, you will see how in our sinful heart that we exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Specifically, if you pick up in verse 21, and if you had read up to verse 21, you would have already seen that Paul says all of God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature, have clearly been seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. And then Paul writes, as a result of this, people are without excuse. Verse 21, for they knew God, for though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, thinking, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Hey, I just thought about something. The last two weeks, we've heard about a blue crab. Okay, I'm not going to say anything more about the crab, okay? I promise I won't go there, but just think about it for a second, would you? We are hardwired to worship. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Verse 28, 
Because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. Verse 32, and though they know God's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but even applaud others who practice them. We exchange the glory of God for the images that we create in our own, well, or images of created things. We didn't create them. He created them, but we make them into images of worship and idols. He went on to say, we don't think it necessary to acknowledge God, even though he created us and he gives us life. And when that is the case, he turns us over to the depravity of our minds and our hearts and sin is taken up residence in our hearts. And when that happens, we cease to applaud and praise God. And we start praising and applauding the sinner. We start praising and applauding ourselves. But what we find in Acts 2 is that we've come across a gathering of people who were worshiping these created things. But something has changed about them, changed them in such a way that they are now praising the one who changed them. We are created for a life of worship. Now let's think about worship for a minute. Wayne Grudem, a theologian, defines worship as the activity of glorifying God in his presence with our voices and hearts. Worship is an act of glorifying God, praising him. The heart of worship our heart for worship, for his praise. It's been a key issue since Cain killed his brother. If you'll remember, God received Abel's sacrifice and there was an issue with Cain's. I believe one offered with the right heart, the other more concerned about mode of what was offered. You'll also find in Scripture that God called a, a, a people to be his people and that he would be their God. And he even established a, a system of worship for them to, to be able to not only worship him daily, but to come together as a people and worship him. And that as they would worship him, his name would be known, become known to the nations. You'll know them as the Hebrew people, eventually the Israelites. Do you remember the story that's in Exodus when God's people were enslaved to Pharaoh in Egypt? That's when God calls Moses out at the burning bush and instructs Moses, calls Moses to lead his people out of slavery, out of bondage in Egypt to a land that he would show them. Do you remember what God told Moses to tell Pharaoh? Let my people go so they won't be enslaved. Is that what he said? No, that's not what he said. Go read it this week, Exodus chapter 7. He said, tell Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. And eventually Pharaoh turns them loose and the people follow Moses who is leading them as well as, as God leads him. But if you know the rest of the story, it's not long before God's people are worshiping a golden calf in that wilderness. And the rest of the story 
is that Israel will consistently turn away from God chasing idols that amount to nothing. Yet God's word is still clear that we are called upon to worship and praise him alone. Psalm uh, chapter 95, verses six and seven. Come, let's worship and bow down. Let's kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep under his care. Psalm 96, sing a new song to the Lord. Let the whole earth sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord and bless his name. Proclaim his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his wondrous works among all peoples. For the Lord is great and highly praised, and he is feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. We are hardwired for worship and to worship God alone. Psalm 113 says, Hallelujah, give praise, servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be blessed, both now and forever. From the rising of the sun to its setting, let the name of the Lord be praised. We see God's hand in creation. One of the fun things about living on a peninsula, you get the sun rise and you get the sun set. And both of them are absolutely gorgeous. From the rising to the setting, we are to praise the Lord with our lives. We are wired for worship. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, Luke said the people were praising God. Why are they doing that? They're praising God as a response to God's mercy and his grace. In Romans chapter 12, turn there for a moment, verse 1, Paul having written the first 11 chapters of this letter, he turns a corner and and becomes a little bit more practical in this moment. He's built the theology of of Romans. He's explained and and showed God's grace and his mercy in in light of our sin and just how great God is. He finishes chapter 11 with this hymn of praise, this doxology of of God's greatness. To him be glory forever and ever, amen. And then he says in verse one of chapter 12, therefore, brothers and sisters, In view of God's mercy, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Worship is our response to God's mercy and his grace. Paul called the Christians in Rome to offer their lives as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord. And he does so as the proper and right response to God's mercy. Mercy is what we read about in Romans chapter three, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, verse 21, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe since there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Grace is evident by verses like Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is what? Death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is why the church is praising God. This is why we gather each week and why we should gather each week to praise God for the truth of his grace and his mercy. D.L. Lowry preached lots of sermons 
in his lifetime. And he's still around with us. He's still preaching the word of God. But I, I turn to his sermons every now and then and, and wonder how he approached passages like Psalm 113. And as he preached that sermon, I looked at his outline and he had several questions. Who is like our Lord and God? But the one that stuck out to me was, who is like the Lord our God in his salvation? Who is like the I am? Who is like our God when it comes to salvation? There is no one like our God. But he asked two considerations when we think of who is like the Lord our God in his salvation. The first consideration is this, that we should consider how he saved And I would put that present tense, how he saves, still today. Consider that, how our God saves. And then to consider how, uh, excuse me, the first one is who he saves. Who? That's us, sinners, right? Are you worthy of salvation? I'm certainly not. We'll look at a man named Isaiah towards the end, and you'll see that he was not. Consider who he saved and who he saves, and then consider how he saves. That is Christ upon the cross, that the one who knew no sin became sin for us. Died on the cross to pay the penalty that was upon each one of us, and that God raised him from the dead. That is why our God is worthy of praise and worship and our life, as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, verse one. And so Paul says, in view of God's mercy, The only appropriate response, church, is that you praise God and you offer your life as a living sacrifice that he says it is our true worship or our act of worship or our spiritual service of worship. Now, that time is not confined to 11 a.m. or 9 a.m. on a Sunday. That is a 24-7 cycle. Even as we rest... Because God built rest into our routine. On the seventh day, he rested. Even as we rest, we are offering our life as an act of worship. Now notice in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul didn't say, offer up your preferences. Our preferences have become an idol. In Acts chapter 2, verse 47, remember the context of why they're singing, they've come to trust in Jesus. They have experienced the grace of God as they heard the apostles preaching about who Christ was. The grace of God changed their life that day as they repented of their sin and trusted in Jesus. This new assembly has formed and now they're praising God because of his redemption. This is why we gather. Listen, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, Psalm 107. His faithful love endures forever. Let us Let the redeemed of the Lord proclaim that he has redeemed them from the power of the foe. You might remember this another way. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, the term worship is applied to all of our life. So everything, every part of our life should be treated as an act of worship. Now, I don't like saying that because I don't like the moment that some knucklehead cuts me off in traffic. I don't feel like worshiping. I'd rather worship my preference in that moment. I don't like it when my team is not winning. It's not pleasant. I don't like it when other things in this life go the way I think they should go. It's not a moment that I feel like worshiping. But everything in my life should be treated as an act of worship. 
And as a church, everything we do should glorify God. Again, not just confined to this time, but our business meetings ought to glorify God. Our grow groups ought to glorify God. Our deacons meetings ought to glorify God. Our children that are meeting now in the hallway ought to glorify God. If you're watching us on Facebook in that moment, everything should glorify God. If we're having a picnic or or someday, some glorious day when we recommit this facility behind us to the Lord and his work, when it's completed, that should honor and glorify our God. God has declared that there is a people that he formed for himself and those people would declare his praise and I believe that is lived out in the church, which is why we will gather to glorify God as we come together My job, Andy's job, is not to entertain you. Our choir is not up here to entertain you. It's here to encourage. There's a difference between entertainment and encouragement. Entertainment is self-centered. Encouragement is for your heart. We don't set out each week to make sure that the praise team has the right songs, that that the choir is going to sing one this week that makes you tap your toes, and that that you leave here thinking you've got the best and brightest pastor, suspect, uh, in town. But the primary reason that we gather as Coastal Oaks Church is to glorify the Lord together, to lift up his name, to make his marvelous grace known to the world. Biblical worship has two ingredients. And when we come together, I want us to think like this as Jesus taught the Samaritan woman at the well, that we are called to worship in spirit and truth. Her concern was that, uh, was location. You Jews say it's in Jerusalem. We say it's here in Samaria. What's the deal with that? And Jesus goes on, he says, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem. He goes on to say in verse 23, an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Other translation says that God is seeking worshipers like this. Fairly straightforward to worship God in spirit and truth, although it's very deep. But simply, try to simplify it as much as possible this morning. It's simply, the truth is that we worship what is true about God. We don't go make up things about God and worship what we make up. That would put us in the category of worshiping the created, not the creator. But we worship what God has revealed about himself in scripture. Not what a new worship song We think a new worship song reveals about God, but what is revealed in Scripture about God? This is how we know from beginning to end, this revelation is complete. Is there more to know about God? I have no doubt because God is infinite in his wisdom and my mind is finite and cannot contain all that God is. But if he says that there is worshiping in truth, then it means that we can also worship in a, a, in a sense of falsehood or uh, what is not right, what is not true, which is to worship God and what God has not revealed about himself. That's why the, the what that we sing is important. We need to understand what we are singing and what we are saying when we're singing it and not just sing along because it sounds good and the music is right. It's important that we study what we are singing Scripture has got to be our guide, always. Then we come to worshiping in spirit. That spirit is the depth of our inner being. Now, as, as being in Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells there, but it's our core. It's the seed of our emotions and our thoughts. It's a heart that is being renewed by Christ, so our heart must be engaged in that worship. 
I like what Charles Spurgeon said about this. He says, God does not regard our voices. Can I get an amen from you non-choir members? Amen. That's what I'm thinking. But he hears your heart. He hears your heart. And if our hearts do not sing, he says, we have not sung at all. We also come in this place knowing that God is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and truth. And let me share with you, it's not setting yourself right before you get here, but saying that in Christ, in Christ alone, we are those worshipers because of Christ, not because of what we bring to the table. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the power of the gospel, the why of the church praising God in the temple as we heard in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, that they're praising God. They're praising God because God had fulfilled his promise for a Messiah. They've come to trust that Messiah, repenting of the sin for not trusting in God, this Emmanuel, this God with us. They've gathered to worship and praise him. And it is precisely because he brings us from death into life that we walk through those doors and that we get ready to praise him each week. That we gather with a sense of awe and wonder because when we consider God and all that he is, in our limited, finite minds, at best we struggle to, to try and comprehend the measures of his grace and it's measureless. We try to figure the depths of his mercy and we cannot get that deep. We gather with a sense of joy and that we are overwhelmed by the magnitude of this grace and mercy, and we praise him. It's too overwhelming. It's awe-inspiring. The joy of the Lord is my strength, and my cup overflows when my mind goes to try to think and comprehend his love, his grace, and his mercy. Psalm 100, let the whole earth shout triumphantly to the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Acknowledge that the Lord is good, that he made us and we are his, his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name for the Lord is good and his faithful love endures forever. His faithfulness through all generations. I invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter six for a brief moment. I won't say brief. We got 30 more minutes. I'll just be honest. I want to conclude, though, with this. Just, I want you to know where I try to be before we gather. It's easier in the earlier service because there's very few people here before the service leading up to that time, and there's a lot happening between the two services where it's not always in my mind, but it's This is where I try to be, and I I hope that you can join me in this kind of expectation of what we're doing in this place during this time in Isaiah 6. Isaiah has this opportunity given by the Lord to see see God seated. He says in verse 1, high and lofty on the throne, and the hem of his robe filling the temple. There's angels, seraphim, he calls them, standing above him, and there's, they're winged. They have six wings. Two, they cover their faces with their feet, and with two, they fly. And they're calling out to one another. 
They, the word holy three times, it's, it's emphatic, it's special, it's, it's important, it's, it's right. It's, everything that is about God is captured in these three words. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. And then Isaiah says, the foundations of the doorway shook and the sound of their voices in the temple filled, was filled with smoke. And then in verse 5 he says, woe is me for I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it, and he said, Now, this, now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed, and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, Who should I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here, here I am. Send me. To set the expectation each week, we should gather with a sense of God's presence. Maybe it's for you when you wake up in the morning, you open up the word for the first time and you spend some time in prayer, you get a sense of God's presence. Maybe it's when you walk through the doors or when you walk through the doors to my right, your left. Whether it's there or somewhere else that we expect in this time this sense of God's presence, that it is real. Isaiah said, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and exalted. Now we understand God is not confined to that space, but it's the vision that Isaiah is given. That we should sense his presence, his power, his position in our life and in the church. That when we are gathered, we are reminded that we have this encounter with his holiness And that if we will not praise him, the rocks will cry out. The angels are rejoicing. They're still calling to one another, holy, holy, holy. But we, the church, are privileged to join in. The joy of his provision of grace and mercy. It's happening in Revelation 4, Revelation 5, 7, 19. There are elders gathered around the throne One of those chapters, they're laying down their crowns at the feet of the lamb. But there's people from everywhere, every language, every tribe gathered praising the lamb upon the throne. The lamb of God is the one, the only one who is worthy there to open the scrolls in Revelation 5, I believe it is. Revelation 19, there's not much of a description, just a vast multitude. I don't know how many that is. Obviously, it's too many for John to count. More than what God wants him to know. So he just writes a vast multitude, and they're all praising God. It's going to happen. It's happening, and it's going to happen. And as a church, we are just here on a Sunday morning, and it, friend, it's just a poor sampling of what heaven is going to be. It gives us something to look forward to, but in this time, we offer everything that we have to him, and when we leave this place, we still offer everything. Now, not only do we come with a sense of his presence with us, but we also come with a sense of conviction, the conviction of our sinfulness. Isaiah says in verse five, woe is me for I am ruined. I've heard sometimes people saying, man, preacher, you stepped on my toes. Some folks use the excuse to not come with us on Sunday morning because we're judgmental. Friend, when you read scripture, conviction is part of it. Conviction's part of it. I stand convicted too as a sinner, saved by grace. 
That's God at work in your life. He's calling you. Conviction is meant to call you to repentance. When we gather, we should experience the conviction of our sin. Isaiah said, woe is me for I am ruined. He was in the presence of a holy God. Now, how many of you woke up this morning thinking, I think I'll go to church and get ruined? Why not? Lord, I'm opening up your word. Would you ruin me today? Because it is at the moment of being ruined where the angel comes to Isaiah with a hot coal and touches his lips and his sin is paid for. It's atoned for. That happened at the cross. What happened at the cross is where our sin is paid for. But we got to be at the point of ruin and repentance. So that covers us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Paul wrote to young Timothy. He said, Timothy, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which I am the worst. But he did this so that Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience. When we come with a sense of conviction, we then also remember that we gather and remember God's grace together because by faith in Christ, we receive this grace in moments like we find where Isaiah and his sin is atoned for. I receive mercy, not for my sake, but so that the name of Christ is praised and his patience demonstrated. And as we come into God's presence, we're confronted with his holiness and our sin, and we also find that we're confronted with his grace and mercy. That when we leave rejoicing in this truth that he has purified us from sin, having repented and submitted to Christ Jesus as Lord, that if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. You remember that wonderful hymn, Jesus paid it all, all to... Sin left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. We remember the grace and mercy of God. And then, one last thing. When we gather, we leave with a call to serve. Verse 8. Who should I send and who will go for us? Here I am, send me. When we finish in this time, we've encountered God, we've encountered his forgiveness and his grace and his mercy, and now we answer the call to serve as we leave. And we go about our way. Rather than leaving, walking out fussing, we go out and we reach our neighbors with the gospel. Remember, Paul told Timothy that Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. We don't want to walk out thinking, I didn't care for that song, or did you see what he was wearing today, or I can't believe he said this, or she did that. But I like what Bob Russell said about the church he pastored for a long time, Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky. He said, there in their worship center, this was their theme, enter to worship, depart to serve. Let us come in as we are, but let us not leave the same way. The church that has surrendered to Christ is a church that is committed to passionate worship. Think of it like this. Home court advantage. Home field advantage. This is something that COVID 
really took a toll on when it comes to sports. I, if you've not figured out, I relate a lot of things to sports. But it was rather boring sometimes last year watching a basketball game or golf. I mean, golf can be boring anyway, but wake up at the end and somebody's winning and it's great. Um, football, college or NFL, either way, and there's no fans anywhere around. Unless you're the Florida Gators and you play at Kyle Field and there's 25,000 students there, right. Home field advantage, home court advantage. It's, it's something that's very unique where the team, the home team is down, the low energy is there, they're not doing so well, but then something kicks in where the fans start yelling and, and chanting or whatever they're doing, and, and all of a sudden, the fans' energy seems to make a change in the team to where they're playing better than they were before, and they're able to push past the opposition on the field or on the court. Now, the fans there were not physically going through the same motions as the athletes, but they're joining them in spirit and in a way that will give that team a sense of power that they didn't have before. Somewhere out of, out of nowhere, the, the strength appears because of this home court, home field advantage. I want to encourage you that this room is our home field advantage. This hour that we spend together, this is our home court advantage. Worshiping with other believers Encouraging, building up our hearts to push toward the same goal together. The praise of God and the proclamation of the gospel. Together in spirit and in truth. So I want to encourage you. The most important decision you'll make during the week very well could be, what am I going to do with Sunday morning? I want to encourage you to come join us. Invite your friends and your neighbors and your family to come join us. If they want to see what it's all about, Make sure they know they can watch us online. Listen, it is a great privilege to, to gather each week to hear the words, sing the songs of praise, and when we do, to enjoy our fellowship with one another in the presence of God. This worship gathering fuels our mission. Our mission to go from this place and to serve.